This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful that we have your word to go to, that as we live out our lives here on earth, we are faced so many times with circumstances, situations, events that are beyond our ability, our um, understanding, and it is your word that gives us that certainty. It gives us the insight into the nature of reality that enables us to surmount whatever negative circumstances we might face. It is your word, the psalmist says, that is a light into our path. It is the light in which we are able to see all light. And Father, as we focus upon your word this morning, we pray that we might be receptive to what it teaches, that God the Holy Spirit would use it as a focused spotlight to illuminate to each of us the areas within our own souls and our own spiritual life wherein we need to work, where we have not applied your word and where we must apply your word if we are going to advance, if we are going to grow spiritually, and if we are going to be the kind of men and women that we hope to be. And we pray that as we focus upon your word today that the Holy Spirit would make this very clear to each of us we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There's probably no area in life that for some people is the source of greatest joy and happiness than their marriage and their family. However, it's sad that in our generation, it is also true that for many more people, their marriage and their family is the source of the greatest suffering the greatest adversity and the greatest difficulty in their life. For most, it is simply based on the fact that they are without Jesus Christ. They have no concept of any biblical teaching on the role of men, the role of women, the purpose and function of marriage in life. And so they get married for all of the wrong reasons, and the consequence is that they are uh, unhappy, they are miserable, they are unfulfilled. And this probably applies to the vast majority of human beings in history because they've never understood the, any of the biblical teaching related to marriage and the family. On the other hand, for many Christians in our culture today, in our world today, this is also true. 
It is true for a number of different reasons, but I think they can all be summarized in the basic principle that they have still imbibed too much of the world. They think in terms of the world's concepts of the role of men and women and the purpose of marriage, and they bring that that baggage with them into their marriage, and as, as a result of never uh, probing the teaching of God's Word, of never paying attention to what God says, never uh, renewing their mind, conforming it to the truth of God's Word, they are... Uh, in in marriages that are far from what they wish and hope they could be. The only way we can overcome the consequences of sin and carnality and the corruption of the world around us is through the Word of God. And that's not always easy. In fact, sometimes it's very difficult to be honest with ourselves in light of the Word of God because our sin natures get in the way, our self-absorption, our self-justification. All of our arrogant skills come into play because I I believe that, that in the context of marriage and family, where we are living with other sinners in intimacy, it is often very difficult because it exposes to other people, that which we wish would never be exposed, and that is the nastiness of our own sin natures. And so we do all kinds of things that are not biblical in order to try to uh, cover up and correct some of those problems rather than what the Word of God says, which is to submit. There's that key word that we're focusing on in these uh, lessons on marriage and the family. Submit to God's Word. And that's such an important concept. It's a word that is applied to men in marriage. It's a word that's applied to women in marriage. Often it's the word that as soon as we talk about the role of women in marriage and we talk about submission, we're immediately labeled as antediluvian, patriarchal, Stone Age, Neanderthals. And that is the view of the culture, the media, the television shows, the films that we see constantly reinforce that that theme it is it is hostile to the biblical teaching on the roles of men and women but submission is not the the distorted view that is often presented and is often enacted in many marriages and in many families because of carnality submission is not a form of tyranny and that's one reason i've spent a lot of time in the last few weeks talking about that the fact that there is a, a relationship of submission to authority within the dynamic of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Son is submitted to the Father, the Holy Spirit submitted to the Father and the Son. And there is a, an, I've used the term, the theological term, an economic function or an, a, a role function within the Trinity whereas the members of the Trinity themselves are totally equal with one another in terms of their, of their deity. And so the idea that submission implies being uh, less significant, which is the message of, that is predominant in our modern culture, it is the predominant message of feminism, it is, it, it is totally... Uh, anti-biblical. It is anti-God. It is a blasphemous theological statement because within the Trinity for all eternity, there has been this relationship 
of submission, which does not imply in any way any sort of secondary significance or importance to the members of the Trinity. And yet this is a message that is reinforced again and again in overt to subtle ways in our culture. And so I've been spending time on this because when we come to these verses that we're looking at in Colossians, which are sort of a bullet summary of what Paul expands on in Ephesians 5, uh, 21 and following, that when we look at these verses, it's, it's, they're all about this role relationship within the family. They're verses that speak to wives, husbands, parents, employers, all of which is related to these foundational roles that are at the key to a stable, advancing culture. And when these roles become subverted, then that culture starts to degrade and starts to reverse itself and to become perverted, corrupt, and will eventually fragment. And our culture, Western civilization and American culture, is deeply immersed in this negative uh, negative development, uh, this reversal of understanding of the roles of men and women in marriage and family so that marriage and family are are threatened in incredible ways in our culture. And and many people today believe that that marriage is just an antiquated idea. This is one reason, if you pay attention to statistics, one of the reasons that the, the divorce rate has, has uh, uh, declined is because people just aren't getting married anymore. They just want to live together until they have a problem, and then they'll break up, and you don't have to go through all the legal issues, and then they go off and marry somebody else and stay with them until they have difficulty and problems in that relationship, and then they just bounce from one person to another, and there's no stability. There's If there are children produced, then it just creates an even more traumatic environment uh, for the children and has all sorts of negative consequences, not just in the personal lives of those people, but something we hear very little about. It has an economic consequence in in the culture. If we were to add up all of the costs that that accrue to our society, our nation as a whole, as a result of the problems it, it, it caused by marital collapse, it would be it, it would be mind blowing. It it is a major cause of economic economic distress when you think about all of the all of the fortunes that are lost. I mean, you have husband and wife have a divorce. They hire lawyers. They they, they have a certain amount of wealth and retirement funds that they've accrued up to that point. At the end of the divorce, the only person who's made any money is the lawyer. And the husband and the wife have lost almost everything. And, and the children have lost parents and they've lost a stable environment and it's impacted them psychologically, spiritually, and in many other ways that, that cannot be quantified or measured by dollars and cents or numbers or statistics. And so uh, when you multiply that times the millions and millions of families and marriages that collapse, uh, we just see the, the damaging and destructive consequences that are there. But the promise of Scripture is that that. As Christians, we don't have to go there. To go there is a choice that we make. But for Christians, there is a wonderful option 
There is a wonderful and the only solution to the problems, the difficulties that can come uh, from marriage, and that is based on the redemptive solution of Jesus Christ. So I've focused this morning on this topic of the redemption solution for marriage and the family. Now, I want to take a little time to review some of the things I've covered recently for a couple of reasons. Number one, we need to hear this information more than one time in order to really get it into our souls. Now, for some of you, that's uh, <clears throat> you've got that down, and I understand that, but it's good for you to be reminded. And for others who haven't been here the last couple of weeks, may be here for visiting this morning, uh, may be hearing this in an isolated context, I want to make sure that what I say in the core of the message is contextualized with what I've laid down in the previous lessons. Our passage that we've been studying in Colossians actually begins in verses 16 and 17 where the command is to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. It is to make its home in you so that it works itself out and is displayed in every area uh, of life. And then the results of that are are listed and itemized coming out of that verse. Now, the interesting thing is when we compare this passage with its, with its parallel passage in Ephesians, the, the results are all the same, but the command in Ephesians is different. The command in Ephesians focuses not on the Word of God richly dwelling within us, but being filled by means of the Holy Spirit. What he fills us with is the Word of God. So we see by comparing the two passages that there are two things at work. One is the role of the Holy Spirit in taking the Word and filling our souls with it, and the other is our volitional response to the Word of God and choosing to obey it and implement it in our lives. The two go together. The filling of the Spirit and the Word of God work together, and as we are growing and maturing as believers, these are the results that should show up. We've talked about the first result that's emphasized is worship. Second result has to do with, with gratitude and thankfulness. Another result is uh, the expression of verse 17, whatever we do in word or deed. And that includes what you do as a wife, as a husband, as a parent, as a child, as an employer, as an employee, whatever you do. So think about that in terms of a mental checklist. Whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Then we have these four commands. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And that's addressed to fathers, but it applies to parents, both fathers and mothers. As I started this, I wanted to make the point that the problem we have in uh, failure to do this goes back to Genesis chapter 3. But to understand the impact of Genesis 3, we have to understand God's original design and purpose in creating the human race and creating men and women. And Genesis 1.27 is the key verse. God created man, that is mankind, the human race, 
in his own image. Traditionally, the human race is always spoken of as mankind. This just really irritates the liberals today and the politically correct crowd because the first created is Adam, the man, and he is the head of the race. That is foundational to all theology subsequent to Genesis 1, especially soteriology. If you have opted for terms like humankind, which many evangelicals are forced to do today because of the uh, politically correct rules of publishers and language and pressure, you adopt these words like humankind uh, to avoid sounding patriarchal or chauvinistic or something, then what you're basically doing is undercutting the foundational theology of Scripture. For Scripture says that in Adam all die, not in mankind, not in humanity, not in humankind. The human race has fallen because Adam fell, not because Eve sinned, but because Adam sinned. And that is foundational to understand all of these doctrines related to the first Adam is Adam and the second Adam is Christ and the role of Christ on the cross. So these attacks that we see around us, these ideas are not just neutral little ideas that sort of free float. They're all interconnected as part of a concentrated assault on a biblical view of creation. And, of course, that's the fundamental issue if you buy into any form of an evolutionary viewpoint, then this impacts your understanding of, uh, of marriage and family and the, the human race. So the point here that I have made is that we're all created in the image of God. Men, women are all equally in the image of God. We are essentially the same in terms of that imageness and of equal value as persons. Men are not superior, inherently superior to women. Women are not superior to men. We are equally image bearers of God. I'm going to the diagram I've developed here that we start with God. We're in the image of God. But God exists as one and as three equal persons. And in that unity and diversity, that oneness and that multiplicity, we have the foundation for understanding all role relationships. We know that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all equally God, but they are distinct in terms of their personhood. That means they are equally God with distinct roles and responsibilities. Mankind, the human race, was created that way. Adam first, the wife, the woman second, But then something happens. There's an ideal relationship before Genesis 3. It is exactly as God intended with the right role relations, but then there's sin. And sin corrupts and mars and defaces everything. And there are specific consequences to that, as we've seen. There's a consequence specific to the woman that she is going to now have increased pain in childbearing. That's related to... Uh, the original command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now that's going to be done with great pain and difficulty. But also because she was created to be the Aetzer, the helper, the assistant to the man, now she's going to be in a power struggle with the man under carnality. And this is the idea that her desire shall be for her husband. That word is teshuka, which means a desire for control is seen in uh the parallel or similar passage in Genesis 4 where God is addressing Cain and says sin is 
crouching at the door like a, the pictures of a ravenous animal, and its desire, same word, is desires to control you. So this is not a word for desire that's positive, but is a negative, a desire to dominate, a desire to control. The man has uh, also uh, a consequence. He, he is now going to be in a power struggle with his wife. He's going to want to dominate her in a tyrannical manner, not in the kind of loving authority uh, that we see in the Godhead, but under carnality it is a malicious, manipulative, tyrannical type of control. So this sets up the whole battle of the sexes. Uh, He also has problems with his mission in life, which is to exercise dominion and control over the earth because now the earth fights him. It's going to produce uh, thorns and thistles, and uh, carrying out the responsibilities of God are now related to the sweat of his brow. It is now there's opposition. But in the midst of all of this, we come to understand from the New Testament that there are certain role relationships defined here. And I said, we have to address this question. Do these verses that we see in the original creation, chapters 1 and 2, do these verses teach, number one, that God intended to establish male authority in the relationship between Adam and Eve in the garden before sin? In other words, before Genesis 3, did God have a, an authority relationship established between the husband and the wife in perfect environment? Now, the view of the complementarians, I'll explain that in a minute, that is the view that I hold to, that is, also, that is basically the traditional view that the idea of a complement is two parts that support one another to accomplish an end and that both are necessary to accomplish that end. One complements or fulfills the other, this is the complementarian view, and this, is, this view holds that authority is eternal. It wasn't something that came into existence in Genesis 3 to solve the sin problem, but that there was always an authority relationship. Modern evangelicals often hold to what is called the egalitarian view, and that is the view that authority within marriage is something that didn't come into existence until Genesis 3, and it's there because of sin. And so their view is that once you're, once you're saved, then we go back to this equal uh, position. So this is the challenge from the world, this idea of, of equality, not only of equality of person, but equality of function, that the roles are completely interchangeable. It's called egalitarianism, which is from the French word egal, meaning equal or level, that the roles are completely interchangeable. And the consequences of this for society have been damaging, damaging because compared to the generation, let's say the the World War II generation, the Depression generation, men of that generation had no identity crisis. They They understood, though it was flawed, as everything in the human race is, they understood what masculinity was. They understood the essentials of what it meant to be a man and to be the male and to be the leader uh, and the responsible member of the home. That was part of the culture because of the residual impact of Christianity in earlier generations. 
But now we have a generation that has no idea who they are as men. They are completely confused what it means to be a man, to be masculine biblically, not socially, because socially, we historically, we come up with a lot of wrong ideas get mixed in as well. But biblically, they have no idea what a biblical man is all about. They've lost it completely, and they're just so gender-confused, it's unbelievable. And they don't know what it means to be a father, to be a husband, and so everything's in chaos. On the other hand, women are just as as confused in terms of their femininity. They have no clue what it is biblically anymore, and the result is tremendous uh, problems. This is the egalitarian view, that these roles are completely interchangeable, and this has taken over the culture at large and has made enormous inroads uh, into uh, Christian circles and churches. The historic view of the church across denominational bands, you can go back centuries, and uh, no matter what the theological framework, Calvinistic, Arminian, Pelagian, Augustinian, dispensational, covenant, you can go back through generations, and what you discover is that that this is an agreed-upon viewpoint. There's, there's no, no disagreement here that the man is the responsible spiritual leader of the home and the woman is completely equal in person and in being with the, with the husband, but she is created originally to be his helper assistant to come alongside. And so this has been called today because the, the world has redefined terms like patriarchal and traditional. They're colored in black and they drip with evil, so we constantly have to conform our vocabulary to the assaults of Satan and, uh, and the world system. And so the term that's been used is complementarian. We believe that that uh, husband and wife come together and they complement one another in their distinct roles. I used this chart last time showing that authority existed before the fall, but after the fall it is colored, distorted, corrupted uh, by our sin nature and by the world system. I started off last time with three points to show, and I just got three of ten covered, showing that, yes, indeed, this authority relationship where the husband is the leader is embedded within the opening two chapters of Genesis. The first point I made was that the order of creation with the male created first indicates God's design and intention for male headship, male authority in uh, the marriage relationship. Uh, God could have created, he could have just snapped his fingers and had a male and a female appear simultaneously. He could have uh, created both of them at the same time from the dust of the ground. He could have created the male first and then the woman just independently of the male second. There's a lot of different ways he could have done it, but he chose to do it one particular way because it was significant. God does not waste his time on just doing things because, oh, well, that's just the way I did it. I've actually read theologians and heard theologians say that the order is irrelevant. That's just the way it happened. God just did it that way. Oh, well, you know, God is not a God of chaos, order, or happenstance. He does things with design and purpose and significance. Uh, the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, refers to this when he talks in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, about why women are not permitted to teach the Word of God 
or to have authority over males. This is in the context of a pulpit ministry, uh, that ministry not sitting around the table talking about the Bible, but but in the context of formal structural authority within the church, women are not permitted to teach or to have authority over a man but to be in silence. Why? Well, because that's the way we do it. No, he doesn't say that. He, he's not. Paul does not treat the gender relationships at all like the rabbis did. The rabbis would say, I think, would pray, I thank God I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That was the rabbinical teaching. That Paul never has that kind of view of women in, in, in the Scripture. He recognizes role distinctions, and the reason is the order of creation, not how the rabbis have interpreted things, because he doesn't ever go in that direction. He bases it on Adam was created first, then Eve, and also because Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and fell into transgression. Second, I pointed out that how the woman was created also showed this authority relationship. This is seen in 1 Corinthians 11.8, where Paul again says, goes to the creation order to prove his point on authority relationships within the marriage. And he says, man, for man is not from woman, but woman from man. The woman was created from the side of man to show unity. In Genesis chapter 2, Genesis 1 points out they're both equally created in the image of God but there is an order of relationship there that the man was created first, the woman is created uh, second, and because she comes from the man, there is a, there's a unity there, but it shows a role relationship and distinction. Third, I said that the woman was created from Adam to show her absolute unity with Adam in terms of being fully in the image and likeness of God. We put this together, I pointed out, both from Genesis 1.27 as well as Genesis 5.1 through 3, where we learned that Adam was created in the image of God, verse 1, and then when he had a son, Seth, Seth is in his image. Since Adam's image is in the image of God, this means that Seth also is in the image of God. So the imageness of God passes on from generation to generation from to both male and female, and this is indicated again in the, in the covenant with Noah, the basis for capital punishment, that the reason for capital punishment is for whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? Because in the image of God he made man. Capital punishment is not designed to be a deterrent. Capital punishment is not designed to be vindictive. Capital punishment is designed to be radical surgery to remove a malignant cancer from the body of humanity that has viewed other human beings with such disrespect that he thinks he can take their life. It's because they've destroyed someone in the image of God. That's why capital punishment is invoked in the Scripture. Now, the fourth point is that the woman was created for the man as Adam's helper or assistant. And in our modern world, this is viewed as something that is not so significant. A, a helper, an assistant, is a derivative secondary position. That's not real important. You want to be the leader. You don't want to be the number two person. Let me tell you, as a pastor with no assistant pastor, 
the role of having an assistant is really important. That assistant can enable the primary person to do things they can never do without that assistant. God, also God in the scriptures I have pointed out, is consistently referred to as our etzer, our assistant. So the idea of being an assistant is not a negative in divine viewpoint, but it is so positive that it is uh, assigned to God as the one who helps or assists us. So an assistant is not a secondary, subordinate uh, role of somewhat uh, irrelevance, meaning, and significance, but it's something that is extremely important. And an application from this, ladies, and many of you here, it's maybe too late, but for some of you, it is something you need to pay attention to because you have not married yet or you are not married now. Your role in marriage is to help your husband be everything God intended him to be. That means you need to really study that guy before you say, I do. Because whatever it is God has called him to be is what you need to help him be. And you need to be thinking in terms of whether or not you want to help him be all that God wants him to be. That may not, in the end, be really a great thing for you. But once you say, I do... That's your job. That's your God-given role and responsibility, and you can't say, oops, I didn't realize that this guy was going to be a pastor. Now, oh, I don't want to be a pastor's wife. I've heard that story a lot. So, not from my wife. (laughs) I've heard that, sadly, from numerous, numerous pastors who have had wives who have bailed on them because... They didn't realize that's what they were in for. So that's just an illustration. Uh, So, ladies, that's your job, is to help him be all that God intended him to be. That's what God called you to do, to be that Aetzer. In in 1 Corinthians 11.9, Paul says, Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman was created for the man. Now, guys... This doesn't mean that this doesn't give you in any sense the right to say, wife, you're created for me, so I'm going to tell you what to do. Because the pattern, the role, the model that's given for you men is the role of Christ. Now, you never see Christ address the church in that kind of tyrannical dominion type of mentality. Jesus doesn't boss the church around. He's the authority, and we respond to that authority, but Jesus isn't a tyrannical boss who uh, comes out like a drill sergeant at boot camp dictating terms to the new recruits. Uh, That's not how it's done. That's not how the father exercised his authority with the son. So what has to happen is that husbands need to go to these patterns in Scripture, the authority of the father to the son, And watch how Jesus exercises his authority over the disciples. He never uses his authority in that manner. That is a carnal distortion of authority and leadership. And it's real easy to let that sin nature take control, but all that is is the second part of 
Genesis 3.18, where it's talking about to the woman that your, your desire is going to be for the man, but he shall exercise dominion over you. That's where you're coming in and playing, uh, playing the role of, the, uh, of the, the, the judgment there. That's not the right way to do it. Men, you never have that right to dictate terms to your wife. That's not how Jesus did it. That's not how you're to do it. But the ladies need to recognize on their own, the wives need to recognize on their own that they're there in order to help you within that complementary relationship of marriage achieve everything you as a couple should be achieving to the glory of God. A side benefit of that is that you will have fulfillment and happiness. But the goal of marriage isn't to be happy. The goal of marriage, Christian marriage, is to glorify God. And God is not glorified at all when the roles get reversed or distorted by carnality. A fifth reason that we see this authority relationship in the original created order is that the man, not the woman, was given the spiritual commandment, spiritual direction in the garden. It was before God ever created the woman that he told Adam that I have provided everything for you in the garden. You can eat from every tree in the garden except for one. And you cannot eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil lest you die. God didn't tell that to the woman. He told it to Adam. Genesis 3, she knows it. How did she learn it? She learned it because he taught her. Because that was the role of the husband is to, was to provide for the spiritual health of the, of the family and the marriage. That's part of his leadership responsibility. And he does that not by saying, okay, wife, you're going to take care of the spiritual aspects of the home. He does it by paying attention to his own spiritual life and being the spiritual example. First and foremost, he has to get his act together with God. It was. It used to be a common statement whenever you studied leadership to hear the principle that you can't be a good leader unless you're a good follower. And the truth of that is that being a follower means that you understand humility and you have dealt with your own arrogance and self-absorption. And you can't be a good leader if you're arrogant and self-absorbed. And you can't be a good spiritual leader in the home, men, if you're arrogant and self-absorbed and full of your own position. The way to overcome that is to submit to the authority of God and to grow spiritually. And that's where it starts, is in humility, you are focused on the spiritual objectives. And that becomes a pattern and that becomes an example for your wife and for the family. And then you lead from that position of strength. A sixth reason that we see the authority relation function established and function before the fall is that the man named the woman both before and after the entrance of sin. He names her Isha when she is first created. In Genesis 2.23, he names her Isha. Ish is the word for male, the Hebrew word for male, Isha, that ending, that A-H ending, uh, is used and applied to certain words. Not every word that ends in A-H is this way, but in some words 
it indicates derivation or movement. So Isha means from man. Uh, She is called Isha because she comes from the male. She, there is that organic unity with the male. And uh, there are distinctions, but there is the identification, that equality of, of being in the image and likeness of God. After the fall, she is renamed in Genesis 3.20, Eve, or Chava, which means the mother of living, from the root word meaning, meaning life. So she's named Chava, uh, Genesis 3.20. So, but the exercise of naming something is an exercise of authority over something. It's showing that position of headship. The, one of the first responsibilities given to Adam is to do what? To name the animals. He's exercising his rulership as a human being in the image of God over the animals. Genesis 1, 26 and 28. Man was created to rule. Mankind there was created to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, and he ex- began to exercise that authority over the animals by naming them. So the act of naming Isha, later Eve, is to emphasize his role from the very beginning, his role of authority within the, within the marriage. A seventh reason that we see the authority relationship is because Satan, in his attempt to destroy the perfection of the garden, approaches the woman, not the man. He's going through the weakest link in his perception. Ladies, I didn't say that. This is what Satan did, okay? Don't attack me for that. He approaches the woman because... He thinks that the best way to get to the man is through the woman. And that's, by the way, is still true. Satan approached the woman, not the man, and then through her, there's the usurpation of male headship. Now, see, this is affirmed by the Apostle Paul under divine inspiration in 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, where he talks about the fact that Adam's form first, then Eve. That shows the priority of the relationship, the, the authority of Adam. But Adam, he says, was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So there's a consequence for women because Eve was deceived. And part of that implies that she's, is why she's not allowed in the church age to be a pastor and to teach the word or have authority over men. Now, I, I say it that way because 30 years ago when the walls began to crumble at Dallas Seminary on the women's issue, the first woman to address an almost all-male body of students at Dallas Seminary was the widow of Jim Elliott, Elizabeth Elliott, who by this time, uh, probably 15 or 16, 17 years had gone by since Jim Elliott and four other missionaries were massacred by the Alka Indians down in, in Ecuador, I believe. And she came to speak to the, um, uh, to, to the student body in, in chapel. And many of the students boycotted that, the ones who were mostly squared away. Others of us decided we were going to sit there so we would know exactly what went on. And there were two guys, Tommy Ice and someone else we know, sitting on the front row with their arms crossed, 
evaluating every word that came out of her mouth. And the first sentence that came out of her mouth was trying to deal with this issue of authority. And she said, I can do this because I'm up here under the authority of these men. And scripture says that I am not to have to teach the word and have authority. She just misquoted scripture. How eve of her to misquote scripture to seminary students. Scripture doesn't say she, that women are not allowed to teach and have authority, but to teach or have authority. There's two different areas there, and she violated both. So this is, there's a pattern here that the Scriptures are emphasizing. There are certain consequences to Eve's deception, but the real issue is the male failure. That's point eight. Although the woman sinned first, it is the male that is held responsible. He's the leader. It's not in Eve all die, it's in Adam all die. Because Adam was the designated spiritual head of the race, and it was his decision that brought spiritual death into the human race, not her decision. Her decision affected her. His decision affected the entire human race. So uh, when God comes to the garden after they have both eaten of the fruit, God doesn't address both of them. He doesn't say, uh, Adam and Isha, where are you? He says, Adam, where are you? Why, why are you hiding? He's addressing the man because he is the determinative leadership leader in the relationship. And this is reinforced in subsequent passages in the New Testament, such as Romans 5, 12 through 19, where in verse 12 or in verse 19 we're told, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. It is that significance of the man, the male, in Genesis 3 that is determinative for understanding sin, for understanding the transmission of sin, for understanding the importance of the virgin conception and birth, and for understanding the, the work of Christ in his sinless uh, uh, perfection before he went to the cross. And all of that is essential. You can't throw out these early chapters of Genesis or reinterpret them in some cultural manner without doing damage to everything else. And that's part of what I'm trying to show here is that these, what the Bible teaches about the role of men and women is consistent from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. And to understand the passages we're looking at in Colossians 3 and in Ephesians 5, we have to understand where it fits within this, this total flow of revelation and that it's totally consistent. The ninth reason that we see headship, male authority, before the fall is that the, the judgments that God pronounced on each one involved in the original sin addresses the role and the responsibility of each one. The woman was to be the assistant and the childbearer and because of her disobedience, her ju judgment, the curse is directed towards her God-designed identity so that she was to be uh, the assistant in being fruitful and multiplied. Now there's going to be pain, discomfort, is going to be radically increased in the whole uh, conception, childbearing cycle. 
and that she was designed to be the assistant, and now she has failed to be the assistant, and she has gone against her husband in, in, in the fall. And so these are the areas that will predominate. And this is, this is a general picture. This isn't saying every woman is going to be as rebellious as every other woman. This is generally a trend just as uh, the obverse is true that not every man is going to have trends towards irresponsibility uh, like every other man. There are These are just general patterns that play out within the different genders. The tenth point is that the Trinity's equality and role distinction is reflected in the equality and role distinction in the marriage, going back to what I said initially. It all comes back to understanding that we're in the image of God. And in, in God, there is equality and distinction. And so in us, in our marriage, there, it reflects that same equality and distinction. Now, I've put together a little chart to try to help us understand what's going on here. In term, and I'm calling it Divine Purpose, Judgment, and the Redemption Solution. We'll have three basic categories, purpose, judgment, and redemption. With Isha, her original purpose was to be a co-ruler with the man. She is together as image bearers. They are to rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the sky, beasts of the field. They are to exercise dominion over the creation as God's representatives in his image. The judgment on her in Genesis 3 because of her failure is directly related to her initial her initial design and purpose so that now she's going to have a rather than assisting the husband she's going to desire to rule and dominate over her husband uh, in the realm of multiplying filling the earth she's now going to have increased pain and sorrow in relation to giving birth but how is this covered? See, this is what happens in the fallen world in unregenerate mankind. It is just a struggle and a battle in the marriage. There's no real solution. But in for the Christian, for the believer who is filled with the Spirit, letting the Word of Christ dwell richly within him, the path to reversing the curse problem is for the women Submit yourselves to your husband as is fitting to the Lord. You can do this now, and this take goes back, jumping the curse, so that there is a measure of recovery in terms of the original intent. For the man, for Ish, for Adam, his original purpose was to co-rule, to be the leader. He was to guard and keep the garden and to multiply and fill the earth. But now... In toil, he's going to eat. There are going to be thorns and thistles. Uh, opposition from creation uh, comes up, and his sweat of his brow. It's not pleasant to be a man and to have to go out and take the rocks out of the garden and to pull the weeds out of the garden and to do all of that work. It moves from being a responsibility that he can easily perform in a non-fallen environment to a situation where it's always opposed, there's always opposition, there's always difficulty, it's now negative, it's sweat and it's toil. Frankly, he'd just rather stay home and be a couch potato and watch football. And that's just fine with his wife because she would rather run things because she can do it better. 
And that's the problem, is that you, you see from this that because of the curse, there's this role reversal uh, trend, and when it's played out through the uh, giving ourselves completely over to sin nature, carnality, and depending on the culture surrounding us, it is just destructive of marriage. So what's the solution for the man? Now he is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Now, how did Christ love the church? We're going to get into this later on. He loved the church by dying for the church. He loved the church by putting the necessity of spiritual salvation over his own personal well-being. It is, we talk about submission, but this is a form of submission where the man is putting his wife before his own needs, before his own demands, before his own requirements. He, scripture teaches again and again that the person who is the real leader, as Jesus taught, is a servant of all. So it is a radical distortion. It's, this isn't the, the you know, the, the, the human viewpoint looks at this and say, oh, well, the Bible is so anti-woman. Paul is such a uh, so he hates women. He's such a misogynist. He just, he just tells women, submit to your husbands. But they miss a lot of different things. First of all, ladies, you're told to submit to your husband. Your husband is not told to make sure you submit to him. Guys, pay attention to that. Nowhere does it say, husbands, make sure your wives submit to you. It's their volition. Now, if they choose not to, that's between them and the Lord, not you. You're not the Holy Spirit in their life. You're not, God didn't put you there to make sure you always straighten out your wife's thing. You're not being submissive. You know, this is directed to her. It's between her and the Lord. And if she doesn't do it from her own volition, you've got a problem. And the Bible talks about, especially in Proverbs, about how impossible it is to deal with a rebellious woman. And you don't solve the problem of a rebellious woman by tyranny. It doesn't work not going to happen. The solution is going to be the solution of you need to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Now, think about who's in the church. That's you and me, and how many times are we rebellious? Well, we're going to develop all of that, but I just want to make those points because initial salvos. We'll start with the ladies and talk about their role, and that's tough. And you've heard a lot, ladies, you've heard a lot of wrong ideas and distorted ideas and half-truths that come from our culture. But guys, it's infinitely harder. If you notice the passage in Ephesians, there's three verses directed towards women being submissive to their husbands. There's about eight verses directed to the men loving their wives as Christ loved the church. The men have the tougher job. I know that's hard for some women to really handle the day in light of all of the uh, propaganda from the world, but the guys have the harder job. And one of the reasons that the women are unhappy is because many men, most Christian men, are absolute failures in terms of their spiritual life, their spiritual leadership, and understanding what it means to love their wife as Christ loved the church. And that's the challenge before every man in this congregation that if you want to have the kind of spiritual life you hope to have and you want to kind of have the marriage that you want to have, don't look at your wife. Look in the mirror because it starts with you and your spiritual life. So we start off with perfect environment where there's a role relationship, an authority relationship between the man and the woman, between the husband and the wife. 
Then we have a, the fall. And in the sinful worldly environment, it gets all messed up. And there's no real hope for marriage apart from regeneration and becoming a new creature in Christ and having the model of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit to overcome that. We live in a sinful, corrupt world, and if we operate on our sin nature, it's just going to be man against woman, woman against man, me against you, you against me, and it's never going to be pretty. And it's always going to be uh, uh, so far removed from what God intended that we wonder why we even have marriage, which is where our culture is today. There is hope, though. There's tremendous hope. There's spiritual recovery based on the redemption solution, that there is real substantive hope and change that comes from the Scripture, that comes from the Holy Spirit, and comes from the Word of God. So briefly, let me go through some conclusions. First of all, authority as a principle is intrinsically good. It existed in the Godhead. It's eternal, and it's intrinsically good. Second, authority was never designed as a solution to the chaos of sin. Authority was always there. It doesn't come into play. God doesn't initiate uh, uh, authority after the fall to solve a sin problem. It predates sin. So therefore, three, subordination is not intrinsically bad, but reflects the need for order and mutual dependence in the plan of God. Fourth, the belief that submission implies inferiority is an assault on the Trinity, the Incarnation, the cross, and therefore on the foundation of all biblical teaching. It is a pagan blasphemy that subordination implies inferiority. Fifth, authority and submission are corrupted by sin, sinful creatures and cultures, so that often what we think of as an authority relationship is actually a tyrannical relationship that's been corrupted by sin. And so when we hear that the man is the authority, what some people hear is the man's a tyrant. Men hear that, women hear that. But that's not what it's saying. The model is Jesus Christ, and he's not a tyrant. Sixth, the only solution begins at the cross, which removes the judgment of sin and through regeneration and provides the foundation for understanding and restoring our God-designed purposes and roles. That's where it starts. But if you're not willing to do what the Scripture says about your walk with God, then that's going to mess up not just your marriage and your family, but everything else, because you're still wanting to do everything your way instead of God's way. And it's seventh, it's only through the filling of the Holy Spirit and the rich indwelling of the Word of Christ that the corruption of sin in our thinking, our marriages, and our families can be reversed so we can truly pursue God's plan for our lives. And quickly in closing, just remember what the last part was that Paul says in Colossians before he started talking about letting the word of Christ richly dwell in you. Don't lie to one another. Think about this in a marriage context. Don't lie to one another because you put off the old man with all of his deeds. That's who you were before you were saved. You're somebody new now. You've put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, the original purpose of God, where there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, that is, as believers, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering men, this should characterize you as the leader in the home. What were those qualities again? Tender mercy, compassion, kindness, 
humility, meekness, long-suffering. You don't see words like demanding. You don't see, see words like authoritarian. You don't see words like dictatorial. Uh, you don't see words like self-serving. It's just the opposite. And the result is that you bear with one another and forgive one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, you, husbands, you've got a problem with your wife. Wives, you've got a problem with your husband. The solution is that you are to forgive one another even as Christ forgave you. For both men and women, the model in your role, it always goes back to your relationship with Christ. Always. That's the pattern. Not creation, not culture, not some theological system, but Christ and his relationship to the church. And above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of maturity. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to dig into these passages in Scripture in order to expose uh, to us your plan and purpose for us as men and as women, as husbands, as wives, and to see how your word contrasts with the distorted, corrupted, uh, chaotic views that are, that are popularized by the culture around us and that are attractive to our own sin natures. Father, the only hope we have for putting these commands into practice is when we are submissive to you, walking by the Holy Spirit and focused on applying your word. May we recognize that, that our role as believers is to emulate you and to emulate the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he is to all who are around us, primarily our wives, our children, and others within our periphery. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us in humility to face what we have learned today and do a spiritual assessment to see how this impacts us and to be willing to deal with you in prayer, submission, recognizing that we need to apply these things in our own lives first, not looking at the other person in the marriage and pointing the finger, but looking in the mirror and pointing the finger at our own soul. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's not sure of their salvation or is uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, for my sins, for everybody's sins. That penalty was paid. The issue now is what are you going to do about it? Are you going to accept that payment or reject it? Are you going to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins or reject it? Scripture says that the path to eternal life is not based on our works, our efforts, ritual, or any other human factor. It's based on the work of Christ on the cross. And the only command is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is your opportunity to make that a reality in your life. Father, we pray that you would keep us focused on the things that we've learned today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.